We had quite a few microphone issues today, but hang in there. It gets better. Scripture today is from John 12, 16 through 26. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then he remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Happy New Year. Almost, right? Almost. Uh, I, I wrote the title of the sermon uh, earlier in the week. Hello? I really think the sound guys are playing with me at this point. Must be the core. Shoot. Uh, I wrote the title and then I read over it and I thought, man, that, that sounds ominous, actually. I mean, look at that. Everyone who hates his life will keep it. That, I'm not sure that's a good thing. At least it doesn't sound like it on the surface, right? So if you aren't already familiar with this teaching of Jesus, it, it kind of sounds terrible. The idea that if you hate your life, you're stuck with it <laughs> just isn't, right? I mean, if you hate your life, that's too bad because it's yours. Deal with it. I mean, that's sort of what it sounds like. But when you add the rest of Jesus' words, it actually sounds worse. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Yet either if you hate your life, you're stuck with it, not just now, but forever, is about as bad as it gets. But of course, the question is, is that what Jesus was really saying? And as I assume you already know, it's not. Emphatically, it is not. In fact, in almost every way, it's the opposite of what it sounds like. Rather than a promise of suffering or a declaration of judgment, primarily, or any other form of bad news, there is some embedded in there, but that's not Jesus' main point. It is actually one of the greatest promises ever made. Embedded in this passage is the promise that eternal life, the eternal life that Jesus came to bring, is for Jew and Gentile alike. It is a promise that the curious Greeks in this passage and the faithful child of Abraham will be glorified and honored together in the presence of God. With that in mind, we'll consider another addition to the crowd. This is kind of a big deal. I'm going to come back to this right after I pray. But we're going to consider another addition to the crowd and their question, that of the Greeks. We're going to consider Jesus and his answer which is a funny roundabout answer, but even greater than they had hoped. 
And with those two things in mind, we're going to see some significant implications for you and I today. The big idea of this passage is a promise from Jesus that everyone, hear, hear this, you're, if you've been a grace for a while, you're familiar with this, but I want you to hear it, really hear it with the Spirit's help this morning. Everyone, everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, as well as people from every language and nationality and background and upbringing might be honored by God in eternal life. Everyone. No one, that means what you think it means. No one can have sinned so much that they are outside of God's reach. No one can have practiced another religion for so long and so deeply that the grace of God cannot come to you. You cannot be of a skin tone or a gender or that's a broad thing today. You know what I mean? But, but you cannot live in such a way or think or have believed or have acted in such a way that the grace of God cannot reach you through Jesus Christ. That's the good news of this passage. It is for anyone, Jesus says, who would surrender themselves to him, loving him above all things, as John exhorted us this morning, trusting in him alone, serving him as the king of kings, and following him wherever he leads. That's the big idea. The main takeaway is that we might all, I'll tell you what these things mean, die and love and hate and serve and follow. That is, that we might trust trust and treasure Jesus above all. Let's pray. God, may that be the case. May we, may we recognize that the good news of the gospel is that everyone who will receive your grace will receive your grace. Everyone who will trust in you, who will place their faith in you, will receive your saving grace. Thank you that in ways that Paul makes exceedingly clear in Romans, for instance. Jesus introduces to us this morning this this great news. Please help us to believe that, to know that that doesn't just mean people of different ethnicity, but it also means our neighbors who we think could not possibly be saved. It also means our children who have been wayward for many, many years. It also means our parents who think they're too old to change. It means everyone. Everyone who will receive the grace of God through faith in Christ will receive it. God, reaffirm or, or even affirm this morning our belief in these great promises of yours. And from that, may we live fully in the knowledge of the forgiveness that is ours and fearlessly, joyfully, courageously proclaim this good news to the world. May that be the case. In Jesus' name, amen. So perhaps you've noticed this. I've tried to help you and even make you notice this. But John wrote this portion of his gospel, along with much of his gospel, in such a way that the crowds or the people who come to Jesus with their questions and in their responses to Jesus play a critical role in the story. So throughout this chunk of John's gospel, the crowds and why who they are and why they come to Jesus Help us understand what John is really getting at and and what Jesus through John is really getting at. So understanding the makeup and perspective of the crowd is a key to understanding Jesus in this passage, his teaching. The crowd that gathered around Jesus at his triumphal entry, which is why 17 through 19 are a part of this as well. But the crowd that gathered around Jesus at, at his triumphal entry, we can't quite tell if it continued to grow 
or if John just continued to define it, to name the different segments of it. But either way, John continued to explain the people who were there and help us to understand why they were there so that we could understand what Jesus was saying and doing in response. John intentionally reveals that the different groups within the crowd had different backgrounds and different motives and different questions and different concerns and different requests that they were seeking to bring to Jesus. And in them, we can see ourselves in many ways. Part of what he wanted his readers to understand about Jesus is tied to those different backgrounds and motives and questions and concerns and requests. That's why we're introduced this morning to a group, a fourth group within this group. They were there for reasons that are exceedingly significant to us. And so let's let's consider the makeup of this crowd. You may remember from last week's sermon that I noted that three crowd streams had come together into one crowd stream in verses 17 through 19. There were those who had witnessed Jesus, who were personally there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There were those who had come to the Passover and heard about that. And there were also the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Those three groups made up the crowd of verses 17 through 19. In our passage for this morning, again, there's another group added to this. John writes in verse 20, Now among those who went up to at the feast were some Greeks. I can't move. I got, got a whole perfect... <laughs> kind of awkward, but you know... There's another group added. John writes, there were those, or now among those, who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The basic idea, and this is what we really need to get out of this, there's more that will come from this, but you have to understand it begins with the fact that there were Gentiles. There were non-Jews present in the crowd and at the Passover. This this was indeed a normal thing. There's even a court of Gentiles by God's design. Probably the most explicit We see this most explicitly in Acts chapter 2 as Pentecost was happening. So consider Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and and Asia, Phygia and Pamphylia, Egypt Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. The fact that Greeks, the, the fact that the Greeks were going up to worship suggests that they either were among the proselytes, those who had converted to Judaism, or at least that they were among the devout men described in Acts chapter 2. But the fact that they were not Israelites, that they were not Abraham's offspring, is what we most need to notice. Again, the growing crowd surrounding Jesus was made up of all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds and for all kinds of different reasons. Jews and non-Jews, some from Jerusalem and many from neighboring areas. Some were there to worship Jesus, we saw in the previous crowd. Some were there to worship him. Some were there to tell others about him. Some were there to question him. Some were there to persecute, and even prosecute him. And some were there just because they'd heard so many remarkable things about him and from him that they wanted to see and hear what he had to say for themselves. 
again, we can add to that list, this growing list, this group of worshiping Greeks, this group of Gentiles. But that leaves us with the question of why they were there. I just told you there were many different people for many different reasons, and the people and the reasons were key to understanding Jesus. Well, why were these Greeks here? So what was the question that they had, this branch of the crowd? That's what we get in verses 21 and 22, sort of. Like the rest of the crowds that formed the crowd, this feast-going, worship-practicing Greek crowd had their own agenda. John tells us that they, verse 21, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Tells us that they were there because they wanted to see Jesus. Well, then Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew Philip, and Philip went and told Jesus. As I read this and read into this this week, there's a number of questions that came to my mind that John doesn't directly answer. Why did the Greeks go to Philip and not directly to Jesus? Similarly, why did Philip feel the need to go to Andrew and not to Jesus directly himself? And most significantly, and really the purpose behind this passage, what was it that drew the Greeks to want to see Jesus? What did they want to see about him? What were they after? Why did they wish to see him? In each of these questions, it should be plain that the text doesn't explicitly tell us. There are subtle hints regarding the first two questions. You probably don't know this. I didn't know this before I looked into it, but Philip is a Greek name. Perhaps it's simply because he was Greek that they went to him. John lists his hometown, which is very near to certain Greek-speaking cities. Perhaps they even knew him. And no one ex- knew exactly, so why did why did Philip go to Andrew? No one knew exactly how the Jewish Messiah related to the Gentiles. Maybe he was just a little nervous and unsure himself. But John records nothing concrete about any of these. On the other hand, regarding the third significant question, the motives of the Greeks for wanting to see Jesus, Jesus' reply gives us important clues. Most likely, the Greeks were wondering how or if they, as Gentiles, as non-Israelites, fit into Jesus' power and glory and plan. As Jesus continued to reveal more and more about who he was and what he had come to accomplish, more than likely they were there wondering if they got to be a part of that as well. I say this is the most likely reason they came, because Jesus' response essentially answers that question. Before we get to his response, however, I I want again, because I think this is John's aim here, at least in part, to put a question in front of you. Throughout his gospel, throughout John's gospel, we've encountered response after response after response. You remember me saying this. If you don't, you should. If you don't, I hope you will going forward because you're going to get it again. John spends oftentimes more, more time on the response than the thing Jesus said or did in the first place so that his readers, including you and me now, would consider ourselves and our own response. So I I've done that before. I'm going to do it again because John will do it again. Time after time, I've asked you to consider how you respond to whatever it is that Jesus put in front of us. For instance, last week, having considered the response of the crowds and the disciples and the Pharisees to Jesus' triumphal entry, his presentation of himself as king, I asked you, how does Jesus being king show up in your life? Consider that. He's presenting himself this way. John shows us various responses of the crowds in part to get us to ask ourselves, how do we 
respond to the kingshipness of Jesus, kinglyhood, the king kingness of Jesus? How do we respond to that? In similar fashion, I'll pause now to ask you to consider this because Jesus is about to tell you how you should consider this. In light of this group of Greeks who had come to him, why, what is your question for Jesus? What is it that you are coming to him for? Why are you interested in him? What is it about him that draws you to him? Are you here this morning? Might be another way to ask that. What is it that you hope that he offers? What part of him do you wish you could see? What about him do you want to see? Let the, let that question ring in your mind for a minute and do your best to answer it. Not, not out loud. Just sort of think to yourself, what do I want to see in Jesus? Why do I come to him? Again, Jesus is about to give us the answer, but I want you to think about this and even answer it for yourself so that you can compare your answer to what Jesus says. The reason you go to Jesus, Grace Church, think about this. When you go in prayer, when you go to him in prayer, when you sing songs, when you come to church, when you do the things you think Jesus wants you to be doing, the reason you go to Jesus, the questions you have for him and the things you desire from him are not insignificant. They say a lot about your heart and are a good indication of what Jesus will do in response to your coming to him. For my entire childhood, and this I don't think is an exaggeration, I only knew people who went to Jesus, including myself, as some kind of cosmic vending machine. You put in the coins whenever you feel like, you know, you know, nobody goes to a vending machine all the time. You go to a vending machine when you want to get something out of it. Occasionally you put coins of prayer or some kind of good work in it, put the, push the appropriate Jesus buttons and he gives you what you want. Or at least you hope he will. That, that was my version and my people's version of why we wanted to see Jesus. Since then, I've met many who wish to see Jesus only as some kind of divine jailbreaker as someone who can get you out of trouble when everything else fails. Others that I regularly encounter go to Jesus as the highest trump card. Jesus is, for them, the card they play to justify their own ideas or desires. They act as if Jesus supports their agenda as a means of silencing all dissent. If Jesus is for it, who can be against it? Love is love and all that nonsense. In each of those instances, Jesus' response will look more like the one the Pharisees regularly received than what we might be hoping to receive from him. Indeed, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, or, or love is love in your name, or cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Go to church in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the question stands, why do you go to Jesus? What is it in him that you would like to see? Jesus is about to tell us what it really means to come to him and why you should. Again, we would all do well to consider our own answers in light of his.
as I just mentioned, John doesn't explicitly tell us, other than generically, don't want to see Jesus, why the Greeks came to him. But again, Jesus' response when approached by Philip and Andrew on their behalf is telling. Had Jesus come for the Gentiles? Was his resurrection power for them as well? Would they too be able to join him in his glorification? Would he reject them? Would he rebuke them? Or would he receive them? Well, as he was prone to do, do, Jesus answered the question very differently than the people who came to him probably hoped that he would. But in so doing, he gave them far more than they could have imagined. Far, whatever, whatever it is that they wanted to know, Jesus gave them far more and far better. Jesus bypassed what seemingly bypassed both the implied question of the Greeks. Are we included? He answered them, just not quite the way they meant. And the direct question of Philip and Andrew. Will you grant these Greek, these Greeks an audience? Instead of answering as we might expect, and the Greeks probably wanted, sure, have them come on in. They can see me. I'll meet with them. Jesus initially made two statements about himself that weren't obviously connected to the question presented to him. First, 23, he answered them, the hour has come. So, hey, we got some, we got some guys that would like to come and see you, Jesus. Jesus responds, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Clearly not what they asked, but awesome and essential nevertheless. There are nine separate times in John's gospel in which the idea of his hour, or Jesus refers to his hour, the idea of his hour is presented. The first four times, every time up until now, this is the fifth, the first four referred to a future time. That is, four times in a row, Jesus declared that his time had not yet come. It's a big deal, Grace. It is truly significant that for the first time, he tells explicitly that this is his hour. His time has come. His hour was at hand. Specifically, he says, the time of my glorification, which they certainly didn't understand yet, was upon them all. What's more and remarkable beyond measure, one of the very things God determined to usher in, and this is key, it's embedded, it's subtle, it's indirect, it's implicit rather than explicit, but it is awesome and unmistakable that one of the keys, one of the things that we need to see is that the good news of the gospel is entirely tied up in its inclusion of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This will become clear as we continue on in this passage, and it's certainly clear as the New Testament continues on. But even now, it is good to pause and reflect on the fact that Jesus came in love for the whole world, for the Greeks, of verse 20, and to provide an opportunity for Jesus, this provides an opportunity for Jesus to proclaim that and offer that. And we get to see that in this passage. You and I are Gentiles. I think every one of us, this is good news for us. We're just so used to hearing it. It doesn't stir us the way that it ought. They, they came and, and probably Philip and, and Philip was a little nervous to go to Jesus on his own. And we even see later after Jesus is glorified and ascended, they're still not quite sure what to do with this. Until Peter's vision and dream. And, and so this was a big question. It was a big deal. And Jesus is bringing good news indeed. 
So what was it about this time that was significant? Why had Jesus' time finally come, and what did it mean? Come back to that in just a bit. But the second response Jesus gave that still seems not quite tied to what Philip and Andrew were asking on the Greeks' behalf, but the second response Jesus gave, another that was more about explaining himself and his mission than directly responding, is found in 24. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, hey, can these Greeks come and see you? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I think you know this, even if, like me, you're not exactly a farmer. Seeds can't produce crops in a bag. A bag bag of seeds, they can't produce crops in a bag. It is only when seeds are placed in the ground. In this case, that's what Jesus meant by they die. It is only when seeds are placed in the ground that they can germinate, grow, bear fruits, and ultimately provide life to those who planted it. In the same way, and in response to Philip's request that Jesus meet the Greeks, Jesus told Philip and Andrew, again, in a way they wouldn't fully understand yet, not until later, that he needed to die in order to bear the quantity, or I'm sorry, the, the, yeah, the quantity of fruit and the kind of fruit that he had come to bring. And in this simple teaching, Jesus was introducing the best possible news. Certainly they, they didn't get this, what he was saying yet, but he was introducing the best possible news for the Greeks and the rest of the world. Indeed, Jesus would soon suffer at the hands of the men of verse 19, and even more so after that at the hands of the Roman authorities. He would suffer even unto death as he here predicted and promised as a grain of wheat falling to the earth. One of the worst possible ways was crucified. But then he would rise from the dead as a seed pushing forth out of the ground. And in that he would be glorified and made a way for all to join him. Jesus told his hearers what his fruit was and how all people, including these Greeks who wanted to see Jesus, could access it. So in the first part of Jesus' answer that we just looked at. Jesus described the means by which these Greeks, these Gentiles who had come to him could see him, namely through his suffering and death. The second part of Jesus' answer that we get In the second part of Jesus' answer, we get the clearest sense of what the Greeks were after and the fullest sense of Jesus' answer. It's as if he were saying to them, Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, all mankind, I have come to die that you might join me in eternal life in the Father's honor. The path to that blessing, that fruit, if if you want to see me, not just now but forever, if you want to just come to me with your questions but receive answers, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want that, the path to that blessing, that fruit, is to trust in and treasure me above all. Let's see that in verses 25 and 26. What does it mean, Grace, to trust in Jesus as the greatest treasure? What does that mean? Sounds cute. Sounds fun. You could probably paint it and hang it on your wall. But what does it mean? Well, rather than leaving those ideas as vague concepts, as so many are prone to do today, Jesus clarified what he meant by trust in four ways, in treasure in two. Does it mean to 
What does it mean to trust in me? And what does it mean that I am your greatest treasure? Four ways Jesus talked about trust and two ways about treasure. Number one, first, if you trust in me as your treasure, you need to stop loving your life in this world. This isn't just for those who first heard Jesus. This is for you and me. Do you want to know if your trust in Jesus is real? Do you want to know how to trust in him as treasure in such a way that you will be united with him in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, that you will gain the eternal life that he came to bring? Do you want to know? Yes. (laughs) Do, Do you want to know, Grace Church? Yes. The first thing to look for, Jesus says, is that you need to stop loving your life in this world. Indeed, whoever loves his life loses it. For clarity, consider the parallel claim made by Jesus in Matthew 10.37-39. Matthew 10.37-39. Whoever Father... What's it going to be next week? All right. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This, This passage, this Matthew 10 passage, informs every part of this section. There are, there are aspects of what Jesus says there that help us under, better understand what he says here. All, all four claims about what it means to trust in him and both treasure claims as well. But the gist of what it helps us to see here concerning loving our lives to lose them is this. Trusting Jesus as your treasure means three things. The Greeks came to Jesus wanting to see him. He said, you can see me. Boy, will you ever see me? And it'll happen as you trust in me as your treasure. What does that mean? First, it means this. It means letting go of your idolatry of self. It's not all about you. It is not mainly about your your desires and your flesh and your inclinations and whatever you came to me for on your own. It means letting go of your idolatry of self. Second, it means letting go of your love of sin and all of its forms. I'll help you. I'll forgive you. I'll sanctify you but you cannot cling to them any longer. And third, it means letting go of anything else you love more than me. To trust in Jesus means letting go of anything you love more than him. If you love yourself more than Jesus, your sin more than Jesus, or anything else, including good things more than Jesus, like your parents or your kids or your siblings or even your own life more than Jesus, then you cannot yet or you do not yet fully trust in Jesus as your treasure. Grace and answering this Greek crowd indirectly, Jesus warns us as well that loving anything more than him or anything that dishonors him is antithetical to trusting in him. If you are perfectly happy with this life, or you can imagine yourself being perfectly happy with this life, if the blessings of this world, if you just got a little bit more, or maybe even a lot more, are enough for you, 
Or if you delight in sin, then your hope is not in Jesus, and you will lose the life that you hold so very dear. Second, Jesus' second claim concerning the nature of trusting in him as treasure simply affirms the opposite of the first. If we love the first, if we love any part of our lives more than Jesus, then we are not truly trusting in Jesus and we'll lose our lives. On the other hand, if we trust in Jesus as our treasure, such that we hate our lives in the world compared to Jesus, then our trust is real and we will gain eternal life. That's what he means in 25. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I don't know about you, but I like a good $1.50 hot dog and soda combo at Costco. Can I get an amen? All right. Occasionally, it really hits the spot and gives me some measure of joy knowing that we're not pressing on our budget too hard. At the same time, when I think of that $1.50 hot dog and drink at Costco in comparison to something truly desirable like brisket from Sanctified Meats, I genuinely, truly, I, I despise Costco's hot dog. And I, the, I'm telling you, rather than the goodness of it, what comes to mind is that extra inch on each end that throws the universe out of balance. That lack of bun. To, it's not good. In a similar way, Jesus is not saying that trusting in him means despising the people in your life that he elsewhere commands you to love. He is saying that trusting in him means believing and feeling in your bones that they are Costco hot dogs compared to Jake's brisket, which is him, multiplied by a million billion. Third, Jesus' third clarifying claim. Number one, do you want to know what genuine trust in Jesus looks like? It means no longer loving your life in this world. Second, it means in comparison to him, you hate your life in this world. Third, It means that if you truly trust in him, verse 26, trusting him in this treasure means serving him. Verse, again, at the very beginning, if anyone serves me, follow me. To trust Jesus is to serve him, to gladly obey his commands, to do his bidding. Now, what I thought all week and what I would kind of like is a fireplace right here. It's, you know, it's, and I'm wearing a cardigan and I'm going to sit down in my, my chair, and I'm going to have an Uncle Dave conversation with you all here. I want you to hear this sort of in that way. This is, I think, a loving pastoral admonition and rebuke. It is a tragic thing when Christianity is shared merely as some kind of passive mental assent to a certain set of facts, or a, merely as a get-out-of-hell-free card or worse yet, as the means by which our selfish desires can be met. We're often told, test test whether you've heard this, or try, try to remember if you've ever heard this, or if you've ever talked like this, but we're often told, pray this prayer and Jesus will fix your life and make everything better. Of course, there's some measure of truth in all of that. But above all, it's tragically false and a deadly version of the gospel. Indeed, it is no gospel. It is especially tragic for two reasons. First, it's tragic because it's false. It cannot deliver on what it promises. But second, and here's more of the sitting by the fire with the cardigan deal. Second, it's tragic because even if it could deliver on all of its promises, its promises fall infinitely short of what Jesus actually offers. What I mean is this. For most of us, 
the charge to be someone's servant is not an over uh, it is not an overly appealing prospect. Kids, I'm guessing when you hear this, you think of something like being your brother or sister's slave for a day. It's not maybe the highest thing you aspire to. It is not what you think of when you think of the greatest possible situation. They're probably going to have you do things like clean their room and get them cookies and give you their money. You give them their money. You give them your money and stuff like that. In other words, being their servant is unappealing because they'd use you for purposes that benefit them, but not you. And even if somewhere in there they mixed in some good thing, it's not all that good, is it? Serving Jesus is different, though, and we need to get this, and we need to include this in our gospel presentations. People in whom the Spirit is not working will be put off by this, but they should be. Because this is what Jesus calls us to. It is glorious indeed. The gospel, the gospel is the call to trust in Jesus as his servant. And that's the best news out there. Because Jesus only does perfect things. He only ever succeeds. He has all glory and honor and victory and power and blessing. To serve him is to be about the greatest work for the greatest reasons to the greatest ends. Think just for a minute, like to get even a sense of what this means. Think about being able to travel around helping out, like picture your favorite band or your favorite athlete or your favorite author or your favorite artist or your favorite video gamer, like, you know, world class. And they say, hey, would you come come on and hang out with me and help me in this thing? You'd probably consider that like winning the lottery. You'd, you'd trip over yourself to help out in that kind of situation. You wouldn't be able to wait to tell your friends and brag about this. Well, if if you can imagine yourself being excited to follow around your favorite artist, even a little bit, you can begin to understand that serving Jesus is infinitely greater still. It is good news that trusting in Jesus means being a servant. Use that today to share the gospel with somebody. I got good news. You can be Jesus' servant today through faith. They're going to look at you either like, that is awesome, tell me more, in which case you can, or like you're nuts. Either way, it's part of the good news that they need to hear. Let's let's not water this down. Let Let us be excited to tell people about all that Jesus commands. Let us be excited to be faithful and give them a real opportunity to hear what their lives were made for and what Jesus offers, which is glorious beyond measure, beyond anything they've ever imagined. Let us rejoice at the opportunity to tell them that even if they reject it, it was put in front of them rather than some watered down version of the gospel, which is no gospel. Don't cheat people out of the blessing. Don't cheat people out of that blessing, the offer to be Jesus' servant by leaving it out of the good news you share with them. Fourth, follow me. The fourth aspect of trusting Jesus as treasure is following Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. I don't think that Jesus meant something fundamentally different by these two things. Serving him is following him and following him is serving him. You can't follow him without serving him and you can't serve him without following him. The gist of this point is simply that where Jesus goes, those who trust him will follow, even unto death, perhaps, even into persecution, he promises, but ultimately into his glorification. 
It's fellowship with the Father. What Jesus does, those who trust in him join in. The call to follow Jesus, like the call to serve Jesus, is good news indeed. Four things that define in this passage genuine trust in Jesus that allow us to see him. They're available to all who would trust in Jesus in these ways. But that leaves us then with the two things he said about the treasure that belongs to those who trust in him in this way. We are united with Jesus in his measureless blessings when we trust him as our treasure. Again, nature, we just saw the nature of that trust. Trusting him means forsaking love of this life, hating all things in comparison to Jesus, serving Jesus by following him and following him by serving. He also clarified again the nature of the treasure that is for all, including Gentiles and Greeks. The great treasure means above all, Two things, according to this passage. Number one, we get to be with Jesus where he is. And second, we get to be honored by the Father. Awesome. Greater than living forever. Where I am, there my servant will be also. Where I am, Jesus says. Where where he is, we get to be with him. Greater than living forever. Greater than all the money. Kids, imagine you had all the money in the world. What would you do with it? Jesus says, throw it all away and be with me. That's what he says. Greater than living forever, greater than all the money, friends, health, and success in the world, greater than all other things and all other things combined. The reward Jesus offered was the greatest possible reward. There is nothing that you might desire more. Where Jesus is, the good news, Grace, is that you get to be with him also. Instead of what you deserve, eternal conscious torment, For your treasonous rebellion against God, you get to be with Jesus in his pleasure and in his glorification. By God's sanctifying grace, you will grow, and I will grow, to see this promise as it truly is, greater than anything and everything else you might desire. Being with Jesus is the greatest treasure because Jesus alone, to him alone, belongs all glory. The Greeks asked if they could see Jesus. Once again, if they would trust in Jesus as treasure, they would always see him in his glory. They would see him forever. They would see him with perfect, sanctified eyes, with perfectly redeemed hearts. They would see him and know him, not just see and understand, but know and experience perfect fellowship and everlasting joy. And so it is for you and me. Secondly and similarly, Trusting in Jesus as our treasure means that we will be honored by the Father along with him. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If being honored as a student of the month, I got that once. I had to lobby pretty hard for that in fifth grade, but I got it. Never got it again or came close, but it was pretty awesome. If being honored as student of the month by your teacher or employee of the month or year by your employer or MVP by your coach or best in class by the 4-H judge would be an honor, consider carefully how unparalleledly awesome it would be to be honored by God, to have God tell you, well done, I love you, I'm proud of you, you are my joy. Again, and without exaggeration, being honored by the Father is greater than living forever. It's greater than having all the money and friends and health and success in the world. It is greater than all other things and all other things combined. It is the highest reward. There is nothing you can rightly desire more. 
the Father will honor you. And if that doesn't sound like the greatest thing you can imagine, you need to pray. You need to read your Bibles more carefully. You need to gather your brothers and sisters in Christ to pursue this with you. And you need to rethink everything. (laughs) It is the greatest thing. Here's my conclusion in summary. The believing Gentile Greeks wanted to see Jesus. To that end, they made the request through Philip, who solicited Andrew to join him in presenting this to Jesus. In light of Jesus' answer, we can infer that the heart of their question was whether or not Jesus brought good news for the Jews only or the Gentiles also. Instead of answering directly, Jesus first clarified who he was why he had, and why he had come. And in so doing, gave an even fuller and greater answer than they could have imagined. And Jesus' answer was this. You want to see me? You will certainly see me. For I am about to be glorified. And contrary to your expectations, however, I will not be glorified by leading a military victory over the Romans, but by giving my life as a ransom for many. And then by rising from the dead and ascending to my Father's right hand, where I will intercede for you until I return. Your life comes through my death, Jesus said. And you gain access to all of that. You are able to see me, to really see me, not with the eyes of your head, but with the eyes of your heart, not by your own merits or abilities, but by being united with me in mine. That happens as you surrender your entire life, and the knowledge that my reward, being with me, glorified like me, and being honored by the Father in heaven, is worth more than everything in your life in this fallen world has combined. Trust me, therefore, Grace Church. Trust me, serve me, follow me, and believe that my Father will reward you, you and everyone who joins you with everlasting fellowship and honor. What an answer. What an offer. What a savior. What a treasure. And so I say, may your, you know, happy new year. I say, may your new year be happy because it is increasingly marked by believing and living in light of these things.